Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands, curated in an inviting, hands-on environment, and a team of industry experts to support your project. We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned, from product selection to delivery coordination. At Ferguson Bath, Kitchen, and Lighting Gallery, your project is our priority. Find great brands like Monogram at your local showroom or visit us online at ferguson.com build. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, now I don't want you back for the weekend, not back for a day, no, 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 I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to talk about solar power and the solar economy. Uh, it was a, a subject that I, I researched to uh, do a, a video episode of Forward Thinking that uh, that published previously. And we kind of wanted to, to take the opportunity to go into a little more detail about solar power because we've touched on it in some previous episodes, but we haven't really dedicated a full episode to solar power. Uh, we, we've, we've talked about related stuff, though, so we're going to really concentrate on it. Um, one of the reasons this is even coming up is that recently, relatively recently, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates released their annual letter, and this is a letter that they – publish 
publicly. It's like what, an open they letter to the world. They paste on pictures of their cats and say what all their grandkids are doing. It's kind of like a Christmas letter. Uh-huh. I hope you are well. This year, the Gates family saw some – no, it's not like that. It's <laughs> it's really more about they, – they like to tackle uh, specific issues and, yeah. and, and address – what they think needs to happen in order to solve problems around the world. Mm-hmm. And often these are really, really big issues. Things like uh, access to clean water would be an exam- sure. example. Sure. And, uh, and this year, one of the topics that they covered was uh, was the importance of, of getting our carbon emissions lower, like yeah, to zero. Exactly. Yeah. If, if possible. The, the letter said, hey, look, according to all studies, carbon emissions uh, are something we absolutely have to get control over. And if we don't, uh, this this uh, climate change is going to continue to escalate. Even if we were to get to zero right now, we would still see some escalation because it's not like it's an immediate uh, uh, fix. But if we don't do it, we're in real trouble. So yeah. we've got to find a way to get to carbon zero. Yeah, they, they even uh, or well, Bill specifically even took some time out of his very busy schedule to talk to our colleagues, Josh and Chuck of Stuff You Should Know. That episode, I believe, published a couple a couple weeks ago, yep. late, late February. Um, so if you guys don't already listen to Stuff You Should Know, then go check out that episode. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually got to sit down and interview him, which is pretty incredible. And as I mentioned, we talked about solar power kind of tangentially in several episodes. On May 13th, 2015, we published a podcast called Is the Power Wall a Wonder? Uh, and that is related to solar power, the power wall being a type of rechargeable battery. That one's marketed by Tesla. And, uh, and it's designed to uh, to store electricity when so that you can use it when you when the uh, the surge prices are lowest. So for places like Hawaii and California, it makes a lot of sense because you could uh, rely upon solar panel energy throughout the day when the expense for electricity is high. You could rely on the battery at night, assuming you had enough charged up. But if you uh, were using it in the daytime and you didn't have enough just from the solar panels themselves, you could use the battery and then just use the grid when prices are lowest. Because right. the, the, the cost of electricity fluctuates pretty widely in especially in California and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in Georgia, it's not as big a deal. We talked about that in that episode about how it all really depends upon where you live, whether it makes economic sense. Uh, but we also chatted about solar power in an episode called Can Artificial Photosynthesis Save the Planet? That was also in May of 2015. And that was a video episode, I believe. Yeah, I think that might have even been sort of what Bill Gates was touching on when he was talking about the possibility of using sunlight to generate fuel. Uh, artificial photosynthesis is one of the ways we could do that, either by creating a, a means of separating hydrogen from ox, uh, oxygen and water, and that way we get pure hydrogen for a hydrogen-based fuel, or even using artificial uh, photosynthesis in a process to create, uh, well, what is essentially rubbing alcohol to use as a fuel. Mm. Um, yeah, tasty rubbing alcohol. <laughs> Don't drink rubbing alcohol. No, it's not a bodily fuel. No, yeah, it's just... <laughs> Just used for, for actual engines, not you. Uh, and then we also looked at the solar impulse aircraft. Uh, we talked about flying solar in April 2014. That, of course, is the uh, the aircraft making its way around the world using solar pa- power as its only means of uh, generating electricity. You might add slowly making its way around the yes. world. Yes, <laughs> it is a uh, it is it is a, a gradual process. Um, but now we're really going to tackle it. And. In order to really talk about solar power, one of the most important things you have to address are the challenges of solar power. 
Yeah, you might, without knowing anything about the subject, just assume, well, yeah, I mean, sunlight's free. Why don't we just – why doesn't everybody have solar panels on why everything? Why are we coded, on them, coded with them right now? Yeah, yeah I mean, why, why, why don't we just instantly convert to this? Seems yeah, like a no-brainer. Put them on your house. Put them on your cat. Uh, just, just go for it. Right. A solar-powered kitty cat. Uh, actually, that's kind of true. They like to find that little space. Right. Oh, they do. Yeah. Right. Um, but they're also powered by the warmth of your laptop. Yeah. And also just by sheer hate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Guess what cats really thrive off of? Uh, for inside themselves. They don't They don't like it if you hate them. Oh, right, uh, right, right. If only we could power our grid with hate. <laughs> oh, man. Or, or judgmentalness. That yeah. would be excellent. Yeah. Energy surplus. Yeah. For days. All right. So let's talk about some of the, the challenges that yes. are, are related to solar power because – Right. Order, Why don't you put solar panels on everything? Yeah. We, we, we have to say this so that we can actually make a, a, a you know an informed decision further down the line about whether or not it makes sense in our individual cases. So one of the big issues for a very long time and still to some extent today is just the cost. It's they're expensive. Right. So the sunlight is free, but the device you use to harvest the sunlight is not. Right. And it's not just the cost of the materials, although that's a large part of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, For one thing, solar panels usually have a fair share of rare earth minerals as part of the process of generating these solar panels. And right now we get those from China. There are they're present in other parts of the world, but China uh, mines them at an incredibly low rate because uh, of well, an incredibly not low cost, yeah. a high rate, high and rate. a low cost. Yes. And the low cost is because they do so uh, with extreme disregard for the safety and comfort of all of the people involved and also nearby. Yes, very well put. Yeah, um, and apparently. That ends up being uh, – uh, I mean it's an issue in certain parts of the world where people have brought that up and said we really seriously have to uh, examine this, especially as we start to see more and more of those materials used in the technology we rely upon day after day. But it's still pretty much the status quo. Uh, uh, sure, sure. Yeah, and, and, and researchers are, to be clear, making headway into finding alternate materials or or making less stuff work more efficiently. Right, right. So – so there's that. Yeah. Uh, but beyond the cost of the materials, there's also the cost of uh, installation, which can be expensive depending upon where you are and, and who, you know, what sort of contractor you get to do it. And mm-hmm. It's not something that the general, you know, do it yourselfer is necessarily going to be comfortable with. I'm sure there are people who installed their own solar panels and they're perfectly confident and competent at doing such. Uh, I would be terrified that I would mess things up, and so I would end up hiring somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, I would not rely upon my own abilities. Uh, so there's that. There's also the cost of maintenance. Typically, uh, solar panels tend to – the quote you usually hear is that they, they have an expected lifespan of about 20 years. So even if you are maintaining them properly and making sure that uh, they're not suffering due to exposure to the elements and, and other things – uh, after 20 years, you're going to have to replace them. So ultimately, when you start looking at all of these elements, you also have to think about, all right, how much money would I spend in that 20-year span, let's say, on electricity if I were to rely solely upon the power grid, assuming that the prices uh, throughout that 20-year period remain relatively stable? And you figure that up and you say, all right, here's how much I would spend in that 20-year period. Okay, how much would it cost me to get enough solar panels to provide the electricity I need for my house uh, 
knowing that in 20 years I would have to replace them. And if that amount is lower than the amount you would spend on electricity otherwise, you could say, all right, at least on this level, economically, solar panels would make sense. But of course, for a lot of people, it's not just a cost-saving feature. There are reasons to adopt solar panels. Yeah, there, there's the, you know, the very strong argument of I want a more environmentally friendly approach to generating electricity. I want to be independent of the power grid. If something were to happen to the power grid, I right. want my house to mm-hmm. still be capable of, of uh, generating electricity. When the zombies are out on the porch, I want to be able to watch the NFL. Right, or The Walking Dead. And then at <laughs> yeah. that point, it's just a documentary series. <laughs> right. Right. So that would be uh, some of the examples that I think people would cite for their reasons beyond just the economic factor, right? Uh, I think a lot of people who were early adopters of solar panels did so because they, they saw it as a more green option. Uh, and also this idea of independence from from a, a larger system that if it were to go down for whatever reason, uh, they would no longer be vulnerable to that same problem. So uh, we've got that uh, to keep in mind as well. Now, cost is just one of those challenges, right? Uh, we, we also have the problem of efficiency, now, with solar panels, when we're talking about efficiency, you're not necessarily talking about, all right, how much electricity does a solar panel generate? It's really uh, about how much of the solar energy hitting mm. that panel actually gets converted into electricity. That's right. what we talk about with efficiency. <clears throat> so there's a basic uh, a- amount of solar radiation energy that's falling on the Earth at any given time. Now, you have some external reasons for that. Some would be like, uh, you know, weather, like cloud cover and things like that. But then also you have internal reasons to the solar panels themselves that they can't get 100 percent of that energy turned into electricity. Yeah. I mean, even under ideal conditions, a solar panel cannot convert all of the energy that's hitting it into electricity. Uh, And that's really what we're getting at here. I'm like you any solar panel, no matter how efficient, is obviously going to generate less electricity on a day where there's, you know, partly cloudy skies. Mm -hmm. It's going to have, you know, it'll be less effective. It'll be not effective at all at night. Simple, (laughs) simple thing there. But even with the most efficient uh, solar panels uh, possible, even theoretically possible, you can't convert all of the solar energy into electricity. In fact, the theoretical limit is uh, 86% efficiency. Now, 86% efficiency is incredibly high, uh, especially compared to what we see with solar panels right now. Oh, yeah. And especially out of the lab. Uh, Yeah. That's that's basically... Not not a possibility. Right. Uh, when I say theoretical, I really do mean theoretical, as in it is not a possible thing to do in reality. Why not, Jonathan? Because you would require an infinite number of layers of solar panels in order to make this happen. Well, let's just get working on them. <laughs> How close are we are to infinite? I think we're 11 off. Uh, no, it's not like that. Uh, so, so 14% of these Theoretical solar panels, 14% of the energy hitting them would be lost. It uh-huh. would not be converted. Uh, but again, you could never build it in the first place. It's, it's something that the math works out that 86% is physically the, the best you could ever expect under unrealistically ideal circumstances. And that's just because of the, of the mere process of converting uh, photons into usable energy. Right. Like and, so, and some of that gets lost. Yeah. And the fact that, that you can't have a, uh, perfectly non-reflective solar panel. Yeah. So some of that light's going to bounce off with a with an infinitely large um, surface area. Yeah. It just 
strangely enough, whenever the word infinite comes up, it really gets beyond our capacity to make it. Okay, well, so we can't get yeah. up to 86% efficiency. Right. How? What percent efficiency can we get today? So average consumer panels tend to hover between 11 and 15% efficiency. Significantly lower than 86%, in other words. Yes. So because of that uh, – now, again, this doesn't necessarily re- – this doesn't relate directly to uh, the amount of electricity produced. This is, again, how much of the sol- sun's energy gets converted into electricity. But that does mean that in order for you to generate enough electricity for your home, you may need lots of surface area to generate that electricity because each individual solar panel – is only going to be 11 to 15 percent efficient uh, under good uh, circumstances like, you know, direct sunlight as opposed to, again, a cloudy day or something along those lines. Um, a typical solar panel will produce around 200 watts of electricity. Keep in mind that solar panels are made up of lots and lots of solar cells. So you have tons of solar cells that are in an array together that make up a solar panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, one solar panel would produce about 200 watts of electricity. So to pr- produce five kilowatt hours of electricity, you would need 25 of these panels. Uh, and that, of course, assumes that you are getting good solar exposure in that area. Obviously, if you live in a place where there are a lot of tall trees that cast shadows throughout part of the day, that's going to affect the amount of electricity you can generate through solar panels. Though we might suggest if that's the case, that's probably not where you should put your solar panels. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have the choice, I mean, if, sure. if like it's the roof of your house is sometimes shaded, uh, you know, you might have to just you, you may have to come to the conclusion of solar panels just aren't a, re- a reliable option. I've got a solution to our world carbon problems. Yeah. We can just cut down all the trees on the planet so oh. they would never block any of the solar panels. Perfect. Okay, so I'm going to move on without uh, acknowledging that. Now, obviously, another challenge, we've alluded to it, is that you're dependent upon when the sun is out in order to generate electricity. Right. These panels do not generate electricity unless there's solar energy hitting the panels. So anytime... It doesn't, uh, it doesn't hang out in the panel. Right. There's not, there's not like a lag time where electricity right. is still coming up. Right. Uh, so if it's nighttime or if there's a sufficient cloud cover that there's not enough solar energy hitting the panels, you're not generating electricity at that point. And electricity is a use it, store it, or lose it kind of thing, right? So this is true with that, any type of electricity generation. Like your big coal power plants, you only, you only want to generate as much electricity as there is demand mm-hmm. because you can't do anything with the excess. And unless you put it into batteries, which we don't. Right. So our our current power grid structure is based solely upon demand. When the demand increases, production increases. When the demand goes down, production goes down. Otherwise, you'd be wasting resources generating mm-hmm. electricity that no one is using. So same thing is true with solar panels. If you don't use it immediately, then you have to have a way to store it or else you're you're just losing it. Now, this is where one of the previous topics we've talked about in this uh, subject area came in when we did the podcast about the, the power wall, the right. Tesla power wall, yep. which is this uh, proposed product that would be a, a home storage system for your own energy independence. Right. So this would be an important part of anyone's strategy if they wanted to switch to solar power. Uh, I mean, not, if you're, not necessarily the power wall, but some system like it. Right. Uh, the power wall, I think what the power wall managed to really do, which was really important, 
is it started to usher in a more affordable class of rechargeable batteries for home use mm-hmm. for for that kind of thing because uh, b- batteries are also uh, made with some rare elements that yes. are or not uh, rare earth elements rather I mean that, yeah. not that they're rare in the ground they're just difficult to get a hold of right um and uh and, and yeah that makes them very expensive and can be very carbon footprint heavy to uh to produce, produce yeah now with Tesla creating their gigafactory uh, where they're producing tons of, of batteries, literally tons of batteries when it's finished. Uh, that could mean that we'll see these prices go down even more because of the, just the economy of scale where you're able to ramp up manufacturing, increase efficiency in the manufacturing process and pass the savings on to you. But uh, the cool thing here is that if you look at the history of solar energy for the home, Batteries were some of the most expensive elements in those in those uh, conversion kits. Mm-hmm. So some people might have said, well, I'll use solar panels, but I'm just going to use the solar panels to provide electricity during daylight hours at night. I'll rely on the power grid uh, or on cloudy days. I'll rely on the power grid because I can't afford to install the battery system that yeah. would allow me true independence. Yeah. And and this, you know, batteries can certainly help. But the the the, the sheer sun factor can make it really not worthwhile to install solar panels in certain geographic areas, not even if your personal house yeah. doesn't it has too much tree cover or something like that. But, you know, it's the kind of thing that works really great if you live in uh, like L.A. or the desert, like the kind of place where if someone sees a raindrop, they'd like Instagram it immediately. Um <laughs> But uh, but it works less well if you live in like Seattle or London or something. Yeah, like if that. you get, if you're or in a, place... in a subterranean cavern. Uh yes. <laughs> yes, if you're. It works less well for Gollum. It, or, yes. or, than Dr. Perhaps... E- or Doctor Evil. Yeah. Uh, the Morlocks. Yeah. yeah. There's a whole there's a whole population <laughs> that we're not serving here. But they <laughs> are, don't are the Morlocks. To the podcast. Are the Morlocks really concerned with uh with with their carbon footprint? They are, but the Morlocks use geothermal energy. Ah, good on you, Morlocks. So at any rate. Boy, I, I got to just keep on top of this podcast. Uh, so anyway, let's say that you are at home and you're considering switching over to solar power. How do you know if it's actually a, a an intelligent choice for you to make? Let's uh, I mean, environmental concerns are definitely a big part of it. And if you have enough money where you are comfortable investing in something that may or may not pay off in the long run, depending upon your own situation, I applaud you for moving off of uh, a system that relies heavily on fossil fuels. But not everyone has that luxury, right? Not everyone has enough money where they can arbitrarily make that decision. They might have enough where they can say, if in 20 years I will have saved money over that course of time, then I can afford to do this. That's a different story. Uh, sure, sure. It's it's like when we were in the early stages of uh, of electric electric and hybrid cars mm-hmm. in this country, where it was a it was a environmental choice that you were making, not yeah. a not a personal savings choice. It was definitely an early adopter person with a lot of uh, a, a lot of capital to be able to spend the on that sort of thing. Big green heart. Yeah, yeah. Which again, more Bravo. power, yeah, more power absolutely. to them. I mm-hmm. mean, that those are the people that we depend upon. Yeah. In order to bring these technologies to a point where the rest yeah. of us can afford yeah. them. So questions you have to answer. Does your home get enough solar exposure, not just with the the shadows like the tall trees or whatever, or or how much uh, cloud cover do you get on average per year? But, you know, the further away you are from the equator, the more time your home is going to have uh, exposure to non-sunlight hours. Right. Right. So, like, if you're really way up there in Alaska, 
there's going to be some stretches of time where you're not going to get very much sunlight at all. And during that time of year, you will not be able to rely solely upon solar power to generate the electricity you need. Uh, so that's Fortunately, a- you don't have to spend much energy on air conditioning. That You would think so. <laughs> but the one time I visited Alaska... They were having a record-breaking heat wave, and everyone was going crazy because because oh, wow. no one could sleep. Oh, yeah. Oh. So boy, they were some. I mean, I don't know how you Alaskans are normally, but you were a little ornery when I visited. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, uh, so other questions you should ask: Does does your area offer tax incentives or rebates uh, for switching to solar? Because a lot of places do have these incentives in place. And if you can take advantage of that, that removes some of that upfront cost for the purchase and installation of solar panel systems. Yeah. So that's an important question to ask. Uh, also, how much does electricity cost in your area? Yeah, you mentioned this. Mm-hmm. Cost different things in right. different places. So in Georgia, again, it's one of those things where if you switch to solar power, it may be more of an altruistic approach because – Generally speaking, our electricity rates are pretty low in the state compared to other places in the United States. Uh, so then you can figure out how many years will it take for you to pay off your solar pa- uh, panels based upon the savings you make in electricity use. And as long as that number is less than what it would take for you to, before you have to replace them, it may be a good choice. Yeah, and if this sounds like it's all a, a lot of math and, and difficult number looking up that you might not have, you know, at access to that kind of, of data, there are companies that are trying to, or projects that are trying to make it easier. Yeah, and one of the ones that I think is super cool is actually a spinoff company that started as a, a project at MIT, and it's called MapDwell. So MapDwell, what they want to do is create solar-powered communities where you actually have neighborhoods that rely on solar power and that can support one another. So in other words, you have your own kind of mini solar-powered power grid that's neighborhood-based as opposed to uh, city-based or whatever. Uh, So they've started developing a tool called Solar System that is designed to help people figure out if solar power would make sense for their personal home or in some case, like a building owner, whether or not it would make sense to put solar panels on the top of the building. Right. And they had a really interesting way of going about this. First, they sent out aircraft equipped with LIDAR, uh, which is essentially a laser version of radar. And the, basically what it does is it, it fires down a laser and looks for the reflection to bounce back as a sensor that, that collects that data. And by measuring those minute changes, it can create the topography for an area. It can, it can, accurately map the topography. And so they get those measurements back uh, for all the tops of buildings in an urban area. And that starts the basis of uh, the 3D model they create. After that, they end up combining that with data from other sources like geographical sources and weather sources to determine how much sun a particular rooftop would get in an average year. So they go with that. And then they start plotting dots on the rooftops showing where what areas of the rooftops get the most sun exposure. So that way, if you were to invest in solar panels, it would show you where you should concentrate those solar panels, not just, you know, don't just put them on your roof. This is exactly where on your roof yeah. you should put them. It's a pretty cool idea. Uh, and then the dots are color-coded to let you know how suitable that area is for uh, solar panels. By the, by the way, all these dots, when they're combined, it just looks like gradations of color. But essentially, uh, yellow, a very bright yellow indicates this is primo landscape for solar panels. 
And then it starts to go from yellow to orange to brown. When you get to brown, it's like, this is probably not a good place to put your solar panels because you're not going to get enough solar exposure for it to be worthwhile. Now, if you want to take a look at uh, at installing solar panels on your own home, assuming that MapDwell has actually mapped out your home, they've only got eight cities in the U.S. mapped out as of the recording of this podcast, but they're hoping to have all major urban areas in the United States mapped out before the end of 2016. Um, if you wanted to check out your own home, you could either highlight areas of the map where you want your solar panels to go uh, on your actual on the roof of your house, or you could use an automated function which would then plot what the algorithm has determined are the the best spots for your solar panels. Uh, yeah, and and it will also look into other regional data for you, like uh, like whether or not there are any tax breaks that mm-hmm. you can take into consideration. Yeah, all those little factors that I mentioned earlier. MapDwell has decided to include that information so that you can see how much expense you would be uh, burdened with up front, how, how long it would take you to pay off the panel uh, investment, um, and other information like that. So, in other words, they collected all those little bits and pieces we talked about earlier for you on your behalf. So it makes it much easier for you to see if it makes financial sense for you to switch. If you're like, well... According to this, in seven years, these solar panels are going to pay for themselves. And that's just assuming that the prices, price for electricity remains constant during that time period. I'm comfortable making an investment. I'm going to stay in this house at least seven more years. Uh, or maybe you're thinking, I'm going to sell this house before that, but this is going to add to the value of my home. Either way, that could guide your decision uh, going down this path. But if it says something like 18 years, you're like, well... Then I, I get essentially two years of use of this where I, I am, you know, I've paid everything off essentially before I have to do it again. That might not make sense for you and you may choose not to do it. Uh, but it's a, a useful tool so you can quickly assess the suitability of your, your rooftop for solar panels. And if you could create these communities, then you again would have like a, these mini power grids. So, if um, if you need to, uh, you might be generating more electricity than what you require for your home. So you could actually uh, use that electricity to help some of your neighbors in case they have greater requirements at that time. So since you've all made the investment for the solar panels in the first place, it's not like anyone is losing money on this. Although I guess you could even create an economy based on this if you really wanted to. I think that would require a lot more thought to go into it with meters and everything to figure out, all right, who generated the electricity I used to dry my clothes this morning? I owe you a Coke. Uh, but it is it is the possibility of a solar economy. Yeah. It's this idea of we actually can harness the sun's power, not just for our own electricity needs, but actually to make money um, through the these these smaller community-based solar networks. Although you can already do that in some to some extent in some areas by selling any excess electricity back to the power grid. Right. Um, that that's not true everywhere, but in some places that is allowed. So that's another possibility. All right, that's really cool. But let's say that we want to think bigger than this, bigger than someone's own personal property, uh, and using solar panels there. What if we wanted to create a solar farm that could generate enough electricity to supply? 
a thousand houses or more with electricity. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, we all we already do have solar farms out yeah, there, yeah. Uh, but they're not as efficient as we would like them to be. For one thing, they are they're still reliant upon the sun being out. So even if you put them out in the desert where they're going to get great solar exposure through the entire year, once it's nighttime, you're not generating any more electricity from your traditional solar farm because you have to have that sunlight to hit the panels to generate the electricity. But what if you harnessed electricity from the sun in a different way using heat rather than the sunlight as the basis for the electricity generation? And that's the idea of uh, the solar tower. So I've heard this explained as uh, solar thermal or thermal solar. Yeah, yeah. Thermal being heat. It's exactly the way this works. Uh, I specifically concentrated on a U.S. company called Solar Reserve uh, because they built a solar tower as a as a sort of proof of concept to show how this thing would work. But uh, basically, the way it works is that you can you can generate electricity day or night because you're storing heat and using that heat to do work. In this case, the work is the same you would see with a lot of other types of solar or, or rather electricity generators, which is. You take our good friend H2O, you turn it into steam, that steam under pressure moves a turbine, the turbine generates electricity. Uh, now, normally we use like coal-fired plants, oil-based plants. Uh, Nuclear reactions. Yeah, these are all different ways that we use to heat water up to a really high temperature so it creates steam and then turns turbines. So this is a similar thing, except instead of using fossil fuels, we're using – or nuclear fuel – we're using solar radiation. I guess technically we're using nuclear fuel. It's just nuclear fuel that's the sun. So <laughs> it's really through the the radiation of its energy that we're we're harnessing mm-hmm. this. Because as we all know, the sun is a massive incandescent gas. Yeah, gigantic nu- nuclear furnace. Um, so the uh, so solar reserve the way that the way they've designed theirs is they've got a tower that's in the middle of kind of a, a field of mirrors essentially. And uh, their tower is 640 feet tall, which is about 195 meters. And at the very top of it, they have what they call the uh, the receiver. This is a series of panels. Uh, they use 14 panels um, in, in groups of seven. Uh, and each panel consists of 66 thin wall straight tubes. What are those? So essentially you can think of it as, as these... Areas where it can trap heat and and conduct the heat from the outside to the inside of the tower. And they're coated with special material to be as uh, uh, to, to raise the absorptivity. So you make them they, they absorb so much of that heat. they very little of it get, uh, gets uh, lost. So all those mirrors are pointing light up to the top of the tower. They, these panels are designed to absorb heat at high efficiency and transfer that heat to the inside. And on the inside, you have pipes and inside the pipes are, uh, is liquid salt. So you've got liquid salts circulating through the pipes and the pipes kind of go through a heat exchange. And it's not that different from the sort of stuff you would see in like a refrigerator, um, or, or, uh, an air conditioner. So it's, Imagine the this pipe making kind of a, a crisscross pattern across uh, seven of those 14 panels. They have two different pathways, uh, one for each group of seven. And as the pipes pass along these panels on the inside, they're absorbing the heat that's coming from the sun. And that's starting to turn the liquid salts molten. So 
super high temperature here. Uh, really pretty steamy stuff. We're talking, uh, they, they, they keep it like the low level for the molten salts is 550 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 288 degrees Celsius. The high level is 1,050 degrees Fahrenheit Oof. or 566 degrees Celsius. Yeah. That's warm. And it, according to them, like the way once it's heated to the right temperature, they put it in a storage tank. According to them, they only lose about a degree of Fahrenheit of temperature per day in that storage wow. tank. Yeah. You can oh. just leave it there. And that's why they can generate Man, electricity. Salts are day so and night. great. Yeah. Oh, chemistry. I love it. It's Sorry, I get really awesome. excited about the melting point of salt. It's so, <laughs> so fascinating. Well, and it's, it's, it's really interesting because, again, you can generate electricity day or night because you're not reliant upon the sunlight. You're reliant upon that heat that's been stored. And you use that, those molten salts, you can pass it through another heat exchange, which then passes the heat from the salts into water. Uh, keeping in mind, the salts and water don't make contact with each other. It's essentially that you have another series of pipes that go through a huge uh, tank of water, converts that water into steam. Steam turns a turbine. The steam goes through a condenser, turns back into water, and the salts that had been used to heat that water then go into a separate tank to be pumped back up to the tower to be reheated on the next day. Uh, yeah, most of the time the actual substance that you're making warm is is not the substance that touches the water literally. Right. Uh, see see above every coal plants, like you're not dropping hot coals into water right. to create And steam. you're not, not dropping hot nuclear rods directly into water on purpose anyway. Yes. That, it has happened accidentally. It's considered bad when that happens. Yeah. So uh, we're talking about a pretty big operation, even for the Solar Reserve proof of concept. They have 10,000 mirrors covering a 1,500-acre field. Ooh. So you need a okay. lot of surface yeah. area for this. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, when you're talking about the liquid salts, they say that 5,800 gallons of liquid salts pass through the receiver circuits every minute. So lots of uh, power going on there. The nice thing is they can use their own electricity to power the pumps, right? They don't have to <laughs> pull power from somewhere else in order to do that. So once it's primed and ready to go, you've got a self-sufficient system. Now, according to Solar Reserve, uh, each plant would have a, an expected lifespan of 30 years. So, you, again, you have to look at the amount of electricity it will generate in that 30-year span and determine whether or not that makes financial sense to support that kind of system as opposed to, again, relying on more traditional methods of generating electricity. Uh, and as for how much electricity it can generate, well, depending upon the size of the plant, it can generate between 50 and 200 megawatts of electricity one megawatt is enough to power uh, 1,000 homes, more or less. So between 50,000 to 200,000 homes could be powered by one of these uh, types of, of solar towers. Now, when you think about the average city size, obviously you're going to need more than just one of this size in order to power it. Yeah. But it's a good way to offset some of the electricity needs for a community. Um really a city. And so uh, they they say that they've got $1.8 billion worth of contracts active worldwide right now, uh, and they hope to continue to expand in the future. So much so that they retweeted me. Aw. Yeah, because they, they saw that the that I did the video about them. And so they said, hey, there's a... Actually, they didn't retweet. They mentioned me. They said, hey, there's a great forward-thinking video that you should watch. 
because they totally talk about us. <laughs> uh, but I think it is a really cool idea and an interesting yeah. way to work around that limitation of you're only generating electricity when the sun is out. Yeah, and and, and furthermore, just uh, offsetting those those materials that can get that can that can get so expensive uh, in multiple ways for solar panels. Yes. Uh, so uh, and and they're very careful to explain that the way they generate electricity is fundamentally different from a solar panels approach, but that uh, they both ultimately rely on the sun for the source of energy. It's just they they go about generating electricity in very different ways. Yeah. Uh, Before we move on, though, I do want to correct my prior lyric statement because I I believe They Might Be Giants has has changed the song now to uh, a miasma of incandescent plasma. That is correct. They they did go back to to, – because so many people were writing in to say – you know, your it's song is really gas. It's not so accurate. And to be fair, that song was a cover. That, that came from a, a an educational album because I own the vinyl album it came from. And uh, is it Schoolhouse Rock? Is not Schoolhouse Rock, but the original, the original, <laughs> the original version. The guy who sings it sounds like this. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace. Are you going to keep singing? No. No. But that's – that's he hits those errs real hard, uh-huh. which is what's so charming about it. Anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about the future of solar panels. So we've already mentioned about the, the peak level of efficiency that's theoretically possible and that will never hit that, right? We're – even when we see the ideal solar panels being used in uh, in labs right now with perfect conditions, you don't get v- significantly higher than what we're seeing uh, in in the field. I mean, you you hear about forty percent. Sometimes you'll hear even as high as fifty percent. But that's like real pie in the sky conditions, like in a laboratory, yeah. so controlled with like such. Expensive equipment. And, that... and yeah, and, and perfect solar exposure. Like mm-hmm. there's it, it essentially every single part of the panel is being exposed to the uh, perfect light. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's something that would never happen in any practical sense. But that doesn't mean that we're stuck with the status quo forever. I mean, efficiency might be a very uh, limiting factor and only very slowly increase over time, but there are other ways that we can see solar panels changing in the future, and a big part of that is the expense of solar panels. Oh yeah, uh, and and so many researchers are working on so many different aspects of this problem. Uh, a few things that have been in the news recently: uh, MIT announced a proof of concept material that's so thin and so light that you can put a panel of it on top of a soap bubble, and it will work without bursting the bubble. That's pretty awesome. Uh, and I mean, of course, this is not we're not trying to to put all of our new solar panels on soap bubbles, that wouldn't really be the best choice, I don't think, for multiple reasons. That could be a really energetic foam party, though. Ooh. I Why do we keep the... talking about foam parties on this show? <laughs> it's been do a while. We? It's been a while. Okay. Right. Uh, but... Uh, uh, but yeah, so one of the problems with solar panels is that the, the weight of them restricts how you can install them and where you can install them. Mm-hmm. And uh, traditional cells that use glass uh, produce some like 15 watts of power per kilogram of weight. And these cells uh, output more like more like six watts per gram, which is like a 400 
times improvement. Wow, uh, so that's really impressive. That's not shabby. Um, they're, they're they're working though on making the manufacturing process scalable. Mm. Uh, right now, it's you know enormously expensive because they just invented it. The process, though, is really interesting, too. Um, all the layers of the cell can be grown simultaneously in a single vacuum chamber. By grown, I mean deposited through fun physics that I don't understand extremely well. Right. But, uh, but, but yeah, um, so if, if they work out the scaling thing, the material could be used in places where we've where we've had trouble installing solar panels, like on on weather balloons and internet balloons. In mm-hmm. the case of like Google Loon project and mm-hmm. stuff like that, um, or even like personal items like clothing or bags. I bet that would be a much better um, solar panel system than that backpack I used to have. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I had a solar panel embedded in it. I remember when I got that one; it was really heavy because it was not one of these types of solar cells. And for another, uh, it was not terribly practical because you would read that in order to recharge your device, you would need to have the backpack placed in direct sunlight for 12 hours. <laughs> how, how long are our days here in Georgia? Is well, that... even even on a 12-hour long day, I can't imagine ever being like, well, hang on, I got to go move my backpack. <laughs> Again, attach the backpack to the cat. Right. The cat will auto find, find the best the sun. sunlight. Yeah, that's true. yeah, yeah. I did that, but the cat wasn't able to move very much. I should have <laughs> unloaded the backpack first. Oh. Lessons for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, there's other research. Um, some, some out of Washington State University and the University of Tennessee, which were collaborating with the U.S.'s National Renewable Energy Laboratory, um, are, are working on a manufacturing process to improve a tip, uh, one type of solar cells called cadmium telluride cells. Mm. And in comparison to silicon cells, they perform a lot better in a lot of real world scenarios, like like if you've got low light and high humidity in an area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but they've been less efficient overall. Um, uh, that 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 eighty six percent I believe refers to silicon cells, yes, it does. not it's... to not to other types of cells. Which and, yeah. and silicon are the the gold standard for the best possible efficiency right now. Right. Um, other types of cells uh, just have like a poorer life expectancy in general. Gotcha. Uh, but this new process uh, improves the, the conductivity and the carrier lifetime of cadmium telluride materials, and and could eventually challenge uh, silicon cells like ninety percent hold on the commercial market. That would be a great uh, uh, thing to see as well. Something mm-hmm. that could have that big of a potential impact. Uh, and especially with elements that are a little bit less difficult to deal with than silicon, that, right. that are less expensive to mine and uh, less uh, polluting to the environment mm-hmm. to, to purify. Um, uh, speaking of which, advances in recycling are another another concept that people are working with. There's research out of the Technical University of Denmark that's improving the process of breaking down old solar cells to reclaim all of these expensive materials, which oh. will hopefully, like, A, prevent those materials from damaging the environment and landfills, and B, help offset the cost of obtaining more of them. Uh, the process involves burning old cells instead of using chemical baths, and the heat energy given off could even be cycled back into the processing plant to help power itself. So you get some thermal energy from just the process of recycling these yeah. old solar cells. It's a great idea because, like we said, with the average lifespan being around 20 years, knowing that you're going to have to replace these at some point. Because uh, that efficiency we talked about over the lifetime of the solar cell, that's going to decline as well. It's mm-hmm. just going to become less efficient over time, just as... All, all systems must obey entropy. Eventually things break down. So having a system of recycling to help offset 
what we would need to create a new batch of solar cells, as well as making very clever use of that excess heat. I like that idea a lot. I hope that we see that. First of all, I hope we see that it's truly successful. And secondly, I hope that we can see it uh, adopted by by more nations in the future. Now, do you think we're ever going to reach a time when all of our energy needs could be met by solar? No, not directly. Right. I don't because, think so. Well, there, there are a couple different things to consider. I mean, one of them is the abundance of solar energy, which truly is quite abundant. I mean, sure. if we were able somehow to harvest all of the solar energy that fell on the surface of the earth, I think that would be more than enough to do all the stuff we need to do. Yeah, but sure. well, that, that would also you, be a Kardashev one civilization. Exactly. And we are nowhere near that yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, so we would for pretty obvious reasons, we can't do that. Yeah, lots of lots of uh, very good reasons. Like, we can't cover the entire surface of the planet in solar panels or mirrors. Um, we can't coat the entire surface of the sun in solar panels or mirrors. Yeah, if we did that, we'd, go, we'd be jumping ahead to... Kardashev 2, right? Kardashev 2, yeah. <laughs> um, which would be awesome. But, yeah, we cannot build our, our Dyson sphere yet. So... Um, yeah, it's it. I don't think we're going to see a time where solar energy will provide 100 percent of our electricity needs. But I certainly think it could heavily offset our needs and that with other renewable sources, we could perhaps make up the difference. So everything from geothermal to hydropower to wind power uh, and that sort of stuff. I think Ed we could, Begley Jr. on a bicycle. Yes. Never let him off that bike. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think with the combination of these, it could be possible for us to meet all of our electricity needs. The question is, does it make – first of all, does it make enough of an environmental impact to warrant that change? Because as we pointed out, uh, a lot of these technologies require us to do other work that emits – that you know has pretty significant carbon emissions. It's just they're on the op- – they're on a different side of the – uh, the energy equation than where you would think of on uh, something like liquid fuel, right? The burning of liquid fuel creates carbon emissions. Uh, obviously, sunlight doesn't create carbon emissions, but the production of the technology that allows you to harness the sunlight does. So you have to look at that. You have to look at the economic side of it, obviously, uh, because it's very hard, I think, to le- to lay down the argument, hey, Stop using fossil fuels, which are cheap and plentiful to you right now, and start using this technology, which is relatively expensive to you right now, because we don't want you ruining the planet. It's hard to say that, especially to nations that are are just catching up to where a lot of other countries were 50 years ago. Yeah. You know, it's very difficult to make that argument in a way that doesn't yeah, come across sure. as purely hypocritical. Um, but... I think it's really nice that the tools we mentioned with MapDwell and, and there are other sources out there as well can let people make their own personal decisions as to whether or not it makes sense to at least look into solar panels as a way to offset their own electricity needs, possibly meet all of their needs. Uh, I would love the idea. I mean, I love the idea of, of doing that at my house. Um, I don't know that I could do it. I'd have to look at the HOA agreement, but I would love the thought of being able to do that at my house. Again, partially as a way of being independent of a larger power grid should things go terribly wrong for whatever reason uh, or if another transformer just blows because I had one of those happen over the weekend. Oh. Yeah. Just 
exploded out were of you, Were you at home by yourself with no power? I was not by myself. Oh, okay. I, no, that was before before my wife left on her trip. I was, oh, good. Oh. But she was asleep so, <laughs> and did not wake up. Uh, but yeah, I was I was actually on my computer and then I heard a, a distant popping noise <laughs> and then all the power went out. Uh, so it was not a transformer that was close to my house. But still, that sort of thing does happen and it would be nice to be independent of all that. At any rate, this was kind of it was kind of fun to to really dive into this topic since we hadn't really spent a, a huge amount of time on it directly before. So, guys, if you have any questions about solar power or you have any other topics that you would like us to tackle in the future, you want to know what the future of whatever is, write us and let us know. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. We are FW Thinking on Twitter. Search FW Thinking on Facebook. We'll pop right up. You can leave us a message there. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands, curated in an inviting, hands-on environment, and a team of industry experts to support your project. We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned, from product selection to delivery coordination. At Ferguson Bath, Kitchen, and Lighting Gallery, your project is our priority. Find great brands like Monogram at your local showroom or visit us online at ferguson.com build. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. What's out there is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you've got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there. Way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. 
Learn more at ucsd.edu.